Welcome to the Shark Pod, the podcast that explores business and lifestyle design in Ireland and beyond. And now, live from Greystone Studios, here are your hosts, Luke Curry and Mark Baker. What is up, Shark Nation? Welcome to another episode of the Shark Pod with me, your host, Luke Curry, out of Greystone Studios. We've got Mark Baker out there in Glenageary. How's it going, Mark? Great, Luke. How are you? I'm fantastic, fantastic on Saturday. Actually, I am really tired. My little boy is teething uh, right now. <laughs> it was a, a tough one to, to get up today, but I've, I've uh, broken into a little bit of Easter chocolate this weekend because I thought it was this weekend, so I felt ripped off. Um, so I've broken in there, so I'm back and pumped about this one. I've got uh, our our guest today is Ronan O'Dalig out there. Actually, based, he's based right now uh, in Kerry. How's it going, Ronan? Good, good. How are you guys? It's good to be on the show. Delighted to have you on the show. I know we had a quick uh, a quick intro a, co- a couple of weeks ago, just kind of setting this up. Um, since then, I've been looking into the business uh, Thriftify, uh, which Ronan is the, the founder. And it's just, it's one of those things where... When I was in college, so I did a, a business entrepreneur degree, say ten years ago. That's when I started, something like that. Um, and there was there was a there was an element of the we did a, a one year kind of module on social enterprise and um, uh, like enterprise in the in the community and that type of thing. Um, but it was mm. always something that like. It, w- it definitely wasn't the focus of the degree, let's say. Uh, you know, there was a lot of accounting and uh, and stuff like that. Uh, but I always th- thought that it was an interesting thing. And I always thought that there's so much that you could be doing that doesn't have to just be for, you know, uh, to go public, to go, you know, uh, buy that big house yeah. that overlooks my house and Greystones here that we think about quite a lot. <laughs> but uh, so, Ronan, maybe if you wouldn't mind giving the guest a little bit of a background on Thriftify and what it is and what it's trying to do. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, Thriftify is a, a social enterprise, and I suppose how we view entrepreneurship is probably a little bit different to how people view entrepreneurship. Um, we're probably a little bit cynical um, about entrepreneurship and about how economics even and the, the status quo is described. Um, so fundamentally, what we're trying to do is, is re, reinvent basically how people shop um, and why people shop. So at the moment, um, we live in a really consumer society where people buy things and dispose of them, you know, uh, at will so about 60 percent of all new fashion that ends up in the landfill within a year all right so within 12 months 60 percent of fashion is going into the landfill and the fashion industry accounts for about 10 percent of all emissions as well so we're massively damaging the planet the pollution the poor workers rights the water usage behind the fashion industry is really really bad and then we're getting that stuff and we're not even keeping it we're just basically throwing it straight into the landfill where it's causing a second round of pollution so at Triftify, what we've kind of recognized is we need a serious change in that complete industry. And uh, we need to change how and why people engage in, in buying clothes and not just clothes, but other things. So what we've identified, first of all, is that charity shops um, and not just charity shops, but secondhand and reuse organizations uh, are, a, are a major factor in solving the problem. And they receive hundreds of millions of garments. So in Ireland alone, for example, there's about 250 million used clothes going into Irish charity shops each year. Mm. So everything and anything that you want 
already exists, right? And it's going into one of these organizations. So what we're trying to do is use technology to get those items for sale online, because at the moment, the volume is too high for them to be able to list those things online. So they're not even able to value them effectively. Um, and they're selling them in bulk or they're selling them by the container or they're just selling them in bricks or mortar stores, which means it's really difficult to search for something particular that you want. So what we've done is we've, we've built a piece of technology to say, let's connect this massive volume of existing used garments and make it available for the general public to buy. And what we can do, what we can achieve uh, is giving people the genuine option of not just buying something that's used and sustainable, but actually giving their money to an organization that's doing really good work in our communities instead of an organization that's paying people, you know, half 50 cents an hour uh, and this was even in the uk boohoo was caught out recently for paying people slave wages in the uk wow. so they're doing it right under our noses imagine what they're doing elsewhere so what we're trying to do is basically create a model to to just disrupt this industry completely it's so interesting it kind of reminds me of those stories you hear of when people buy certain uh, discount uh, clothes uh, brands where they find little notes of uh, you know a cries for help within the thing really uh really really heartbreaking stuff and the i think this is a really interesting business because i don't know about you mark but do you know when you go into like a charity and ch charity shop and stuff like that and maybe it is something to do with what ron's talking about with the volume but it does seem it's a bit overwhelming when you when you go into those stuff it's just stacks of stuff everywhere there's no yeah. branding the actual experience of going in uh to one of those shops is like it's not it's it's not really designed for you know uh, customer experience. It's more it it is more for the kind of the cause. That's the you know that's the the driving thing here. And maybe that it should be like that. Um, but this is an interesting one that except uh, if you if anyone goes to the website, it it feels it feels like a like a really professional e, e retailer, um, and it, it's kind of solving for that as well. But like so when you're was there kind of was were people putting their hand up to to get involved in this when you guys were setting it up or was it a little bit like how are we going to take pictures of 250 million garments <laughs> or you know from a logistics point of view were were the shops on board straight away or how did you guys kind of get them involved yeah well we, we started ages ago like so you know i initially had the idea back in like 2014 for this and it was because i'd picked up a cheap book in a charity shop and i realized it was worth a lot more than they were selling for and that was where the initial idea started was books um so i sat on the idea for a while waited until i had a tech co-founder because i knew it would be a tech play and um, was very lucky got a really good two really good co-founders in um and we just went we just started with one charity like we we basically just followed the lean startup methodology you know line by line and we're just devote lean startup fanatics so you know it took us a very very long time um, and it was because we were patient uh, and we did things very slowly and we just worked with one charity we, we went to one charity and we said you know we think your books are worth a lot more than what you're selling them for can we have a couple of hundred and they said yeah have, have thousands have as many as you want and we realized then the volume was just enormous and the same thing that's happening in clothing is happening in all these other areas kids toys books dvds console games um, even paintings and art like everything you can imagine furniture like everything has gone into these organizations and the volume of stuff is so high that they really struggle to value it so we started out and said well we'll help you value the books um and we built a very simple piece of technology to help them value books on an app um and it kind of has just 
you know, been iterated and grown from there. Um, and, you know, these organizations are run by very, very intelligent people. They're not, they're not second class organizations. You know, they're very, very smart. They're very good at what they do. Um, but they have huge challenges, which even if the best people in the world had these, that kind of volume, they would struggle to cope with it. Yeah. So, you know, what they've, what they said and what they, what their approach has been for decades is let's just maximize the volume you know, and earn as much as we can on the volume uh, and use that to fund our main work, which is whether that's helping people with sight loss or whether that's housing people or whether, whatever it is, they just say, let's maximize the volume, sell it for as much as we can, sell as much of it and reinvest it. Whereas we've kind of come to them with a different model and said, yeah, that's great, but, you know, do that, but don't sell the book that's worth 200 quid for a penny to be recycled. Yeah. Try and siphon that out. Try and find that good stuff. Try and find that stuff that you will shift online. And that's going to be what we believe that can be 20x bigger than their entire operation at the moment. So, you know, they can grow from a, a two billion pound industry in the UK and Ireland to 20 billion pound industry, we believe, by coming online. And that's very appealing to smart people. Smart people understand that they're not selling stuff for, you know, if I go to anybody and say, this book's worth 200 quid, do you want to sell it for a cent or do you want to sell it for 200 quid? They're going to say, well, obviously, I want to sell it for 200 quid. So, like, they get it, but it's just a challenge. The challenge has been adopting their model and trying to, you know, gradually come on board with something that's a big departure from what they're used to. But, you know, they are very smart. They get it, and they're, they're gradually coming on board. There's still huge work to do, but, um, you know, I think it's understood now, especially that if you're not online, you know, and you're a bricks-and-mortar retail retailer, you really need to reconsider that. It's uh, it's so I just got this this feeling of um, of panic when I start to think about the volume of stuff coming in and what to do with it. Like, how do you even store that much that much? And I remember me and Mark had a Des Travers on the uh, on the podcast. The he's the the head of uh, DPD, the delivery company, and he was saying like if if something crashes for like half a day, there's a quarter million packages coming through the system, and they all start to back up and back up. And I remember thinking like how stressful that would be so i guess a lot of their work is probably just managing inventory and how to just it's warehousing all this uh the stuff that they might be able to sell one day um so are you guys working on on that type of stuff as it comes in or are they kind of handpicking stuff that they think is going to be uh you know have a markup that would work for online or do you guys have a list of stuff that's like hot sellers or how how's the how's that set up yeah, well, we try to we try to approach it from both ends, and we've built a technology in a way that can be used by on, on either in either approach, right? So, you have some organisations that have hundreds of shops and warehouses across the country, and then you have other organisations that have two or three shops and a very small scale. So, what we've done is we've built a solution in the tech in a way that can be used at 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 the point of source or at the the, the the end point, right? So what I mean by that is they can use our technology as soon as a donation arrives. They can point the camera at any barcoded product in the world and it will tell them whether or not they should sell it online. And we've built a bunch of algorithms basically to, to calculate that for them and to say whether or not you should sell this product. So they can do it as soon as they get it, which a lot of the smaller shops do. And a lot of, even some of the bigger uh, chains will do in their stores as the items are coming in. Um, and then what that that works for the barcoded products, um, and then what we find a lot of the other a lot of the organisations will do is because they have huge volume of clothing in warehouses, they'll pick products from the warehouse. And basically, you know, our biggest challenge at the moment is volume. So 
we're, we've been really focused on um, getting the technology capable of uploading as much volume as possible. And it's a, the single biggest challenge that we have because they have hundreds of millions of garments. Yeah. Like you can't scan a dress and automate the uploading of that and the pricing because the technology doesn't exist. So what we're finding at the moment is that they're picking stuff that's really good, but there's a lot more to be picked. There's a lot more that could be uploaded. So it's very dependent on having individuals and taking time for them to upload garments. So the only way for them to scale at the moment is to add more people to the process. Now, a lot of them are doing that because, you know, they're making a lot of money and they're able to reinvest that in new staff, which they're employing to to get involved in the process. But fundamentally, our big focus now in terms of the technology for the next few months is to increase that upload speed. So we're looking at things like Google image recognition technology, text recognition. So they'll just be sending us pictures of the, the labels or we'll be pulling all of the information from the labels. Um, we're also looking at some machine learning technology so that the technology will basically predict and recommend categories instead of them having to type in or, or, or tell us what the categories of the products are. So it's a big, huge piece of work for us. And I think that if we can crack that nut, you know, it's going to really enable us to, to rapidly scale not only the, the number of volume in terms of pieces for sale, but also the kind of users that we're able to, the kind of locations and, and international scaling um, that we'll be able to engage in. Because internationally, you know, you have organizations in Germany and the US who are doing, single organizations doing hundreds of millions of garments. And if we can build a solution that that suits them, then we'd be in a really good position to scale. Ronan, what about... Um... And I don't know if you've thought of this already or if it would work or not, but obviously say if I have a lump of garments here and I want to get them to a charity shop and then all the work is done there. What if I did the work? I assigned myself to to my favorite charity and I had the app or whatever and scanned it. And the incentive is to me, I get a cut, they get a cut. It gets reused. Is that something you thought about? You might, yeah, you might do a good, good, uh, good deed as well, Mark. It's all about your cut, you know. The, no, but yeah. I mean, you have to incentivize people. You're like, money talks at the end of the day. You can, we can wish people will do the best thing. Well, you know. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely an interesting model, and there's some interesting people doing it. So, like in the UK, there's an organization called Trift Plus, um, and they will send you a bag. You put your stuff in the bag, send it back to them. And they split the money three ways. So you get a third, they get a third, and your nominated charity gets a third, um, which is a really interesting model. But I suppose the challenge for us, it, again, what see the, the reason they do that is because they then control the merchandising. So all of the imagery looks the same. The descriptions are the same. The end customer gets the item in the right time. They get the same tracking number. All of that's handled. So like if we in a, if we do a consumer play and let and get hundreds or thousands of people uploading product, everything's going to look different. Everything's going to feel different. The experience is going to be different. The, the, we won't be able to manage the customer support. Um, there's all those other challenges that come with it. So it's something we're actively exploring. But I think probably the best way to do it is to is to have a direct connection with the charity retailer. So you send your stuff directly to the charity retailer you want to support, and you get a kickback that way, or you get um, maybe it's cash, or maybe it's uh, probably more likely maybe it's a it's a percentage off your next shop on Triftify. So it's kind of a retaining strategy. You know, you post us a dress, and if it sells for a hundred quid, you get fifty quid off your next purchase on Triftify. Something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's the operational process of how we manage that uh, and the tech, how we build a tech for that um, is the challenge. But it's definitely something I think, yeah, I think it's something that's really interesting, probably something we're, we've, we've spoken about, we haven't planned for yet, but I think, you know, give us a bit of time and you, you'll see it there somewhere. <laughs> is there somebody trying to create a, a, 
an Amazon for like a charity, you know, a sustainable Amazon? Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of, you know, we would have spoken internally about that a lot. Um, I think, um, I think there's challenges with that phrase, a sustainable Amazon. Like Amazon is um, inherently unsustainable. Like the whole model of Amazon is rock bottom price, cheap as possible, lowest wages as possible, bust the unions, don't pay tax. Um, like so, as a model, like Amazon is the absolute beacon of how not to do entrepreneurship if you want to have a sustainable planet so you know what does a sustainable amazon looks like probably means probably looks like no amazon to be honest um you know how i think how how we would be approaching it is is a different way of looking at purchasing so at the moment when we purchase something it has a negative impact for, for most things we purchase have a negative impact you know you might go to your local farmer's market and buy organic food brilliant you know it's local it's sourced excellent if you're buying a important address from boohoo like it, it's negative impact the whole cycle of that you know apart from your feel good factor and that's the reality of the model the economic model we've built so we what we would more talk about is what's the rea- what's the economic model look like if we want to live in a sustainable planet if we want if we want people to be on good wages if we don't want to have a bunch of social problems if we don't want to have massive pollution if we don't have rising seas you know all those kind of things so for us it's i suppose it's about how can we get the products that are already in existence recycled and reused which is why i really like the idea we just spoke about because you're getting people back involved in a loop with the products that they have around them and the like genuinely anything you want is in existence but the problem is it's hard to find it you know, we can find anything new we want because we've built economic models to get that thing to you next day delivery cheap as possible. But we haven't yet built the models to make things that are already in existence as accessible. So what we're trying to do, I suppose, is is give you the exact, give you as good an experience, you know, really quick delivery, a fantastic feel good experience, a good unboxing experience, all of those things that are positive, but without the negative aspect and and have it all as used goods. So charity shops are where we focused and where we started. And there's huge work for us to do in, in the charity retail sector, years of work, really. Um, but it is interesting then to look at, well, what are the other areas that we have massive reuse or what are the other organizations that are dealing with used goods? And, you know, we will talk internally about how can we get those guys online as well. But for now, I suppose, and for the long term, at least the focus is on charity retail because that's where the volume, the big volume of used goods are. Okay. It's interesting. I think Mark as well, like for your idea, that's, that's, you're managing a lot of stakeholders there. Like, like I think what Ronan was saying there is like when you deal directly with the shops, there's a lot more you can control with the, with the bits and pieces. It might be, remember the early days of, uh, of, um, of, e, uh, of eBay where all the pictures are, are, poorly lit kind of laid out on the carpet and like it's just not as a uh, you know uniform and that's what people are kind of expecting now and you go to like mm-hmm. those places like amazon and stuff like that um but yeah so the so in that case ronan are you, when you guys are chatting about building the business stuff like that is that always something that's in your mind that okay how can we deliver this with so we don't end up with uh loads of plastic in dublin bay or is it, how difficult is that to do <laughs> yeah um I think it's I think once you commit to it you kind of find ways to do it like you know we we said when we were sourcing packaging we said we want the most sustainable packaging in the world 
and we were like, well, let's just find the most sustainable packaging in the world. Like, and we found packaging that will go completely back to nature within 90 days if you put it in your home compost like I did a test with it I put it outside with a banana peel on top of it and left it for three months and it just disappeared into the ground like wow. it's made from corn it's made from corn and um, so those kind of solutions exist right now obviously it costs if I was to buy a plastic bag I'd get it for a fraction of the price but at what cost like this is the, this is the big problem that we have every business person and every entrepreneur is thinking about the cost to themselves and We've been trained, all of us have been trained to do that. We've all been trained to think of what's the cost to me and what's my bottom line. And we completely ignore the cost to the ecosystems, the cost to society and the cost to other people. So, you know, it's an enormous problem. And, you know, if I was just focusing on our bottom line, I'd be buying really cheap plastic, you know, that would be taking 1,200 years to decompose. And I wouldn't care about that cost. Whereas actually, if you just say to yourself, well, actually, what's the cost of this? Genuinely, what's the cost of the various things we're doing? And how do we get that cost down? Not just the cost to me, but the cost to ecosystems, the cost to the planet, the cost to the people who are supplying these bags, where they're coming from, all of that kind of stuff. If you just build that into your culture, you know, it actually becomes really fun. Like it becomes a really nice way of doing business. And you kind of realize that you can actually do things very positively. It, it, it takes a little bit more effort, it takes a little bit more time and you have to be kind of willing to do that. You know, and that's a real challenge for a startup social, mm. social, especially any enterprise, but especially a social enterprise. You know, we have bigger challenges than, than most enterprises that are for profit because it's harder to access finance and a bunch of things like that. But I think when you do do it and when you do commit to it, it's really inspiring and it really get it really gets the team the team is really bought in. Like we have a really good culture as well, and I think it's that's one of the reasons. Like we're attracting whenever we have a new position, like we're attracting hundreds of applications, and it's because people are, especially young people, are saying I'm totally fed up with how I've been told the world needs to work. Like people are genuinely at their last header with how we've been told and trained to view entrepreneurship. And and we've a huge demand for positions. We've huge interest in what we're doing because we're, we're saying things need to be radically different, not just a little bit different. Like we need to throw this model on its head and come up with something better. And people relate to that. So, you know, obviously then there's the benefits of that. So it, it, we spend a little bit more time or effort in doing something sustainable. And that really relates with our customers, our, our, our community. And they say, Jesus, yeah, I am actually going to support this company. I am going to get behind them. I'm going to tell my friends and my family. And that's what we've found is starting to happen as well. Like the word of mouth is huge, is spreading really quickly. Um, and then our retention, you know, some at some months the 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 traffic on our site can be sixty percent of it could be retained users, which wow. is just Incredible. like unheard of for in e-commerce. Like it's just mental. Like the, our retention is just through the roof, and it's because you know it, there's loads of reasons, but one of the main reasons is because of because of our ethics and because it's relating with people. It's kind of interesting. I'm going to pose something here that may not be true, but I'm going to put it out there anyway. But uh, it, it seems. Like we mentioned there that we've been all kind of been trained to be that kind of economic uh, maximizers. And I think it comes from, it's kind of perpetuated by a fear that we had, have that one day we won't have enough for food mm. or we won't have enough for, for housing, especially in Ireland. Everyone is pa- panics a lot around that. Um, so like, okay, like I, I know when I was in uh, Vietnam a few years ago and I was swimming around Halong Bay, I was swimming through plastic bags, but I have to put that, I have to put that aside because I got to, I got, I got to save for this mortgage, right? So that's the decision that I'm making, right? Um, but is there something to be said for like a little bit of a competitive advantage that you can build in 
if you do kind of go with the the ethical side of things like you're saying that type of retention making people feel good about what they're uh they're doing yeah. rather than like i i buy things on amazon and i remember i was on a call recently with a with the service of a small business that i bought uh on e-commerce uh an appliance and i was saying to them like and it was a really bad experience and they were being very unhelpful and i'm like you're making me go buy something from amazon i can't do this <laughs> i mean i can't spend all day trying to fix this you know and uh so that that type of feeling where it's just like oh it's like a capitula- capitulation to the amazon because there's no really other option for what i wanted in a yeah, reasonable yeah. time had they been uh building uh hosp- ho- hospitals in you know um a third world country uh, maybe i would have stayed on the line a little longer but you know, <laughs> if their if their motivation was the same as amazon's then i'm kind of like well you know yeah yeah i mean there... i think sorry go sorry, ahead go on, no well i was just gonna say i do think there is a huge there, there is a huge competitive advantage to be found in doing things the right way um and it's just unfortunate that it, it, the myth has been spread that doing things the right way is more costly and again it's it, that's kind of it's almost it's almost championed in some quarters you know you, we kind of champion people who are cutthroat or people who are or enterprises that are cutthroat like Deliveroo for example is about to IPO and you know they're being championed as a great business whereas most of their staff are on two quid a week like two quid an hour like so you kind of be thinking where where has this culture come from that that we celebrate those and the reality guys is that young people especially are vehemently on a completely different track and it's something I don't think a lot of especially perhaps more senior business people have really come to the realization of yet that like the radicalization of not radicalization in a bad way, but like the, the radically different way young people view entrepreneurship is going to have an enormous impact, I think. And they just view it in the sense through the lens of climate change and the anxiety that they feel about the fact that what's going to happen to the planet within their lifetime. And if organizations and companies get on, get on board with that, it absolutely makes you stand out from the crowd like so much and um you know i i think the amazon thing is really interesting because they're when we support amazon or when we buy from amazon i buy stuff on amazon not regularly but if i need something i can't find elsewhere like i will buy it on amazon you know um i don't think every i don't think the responsibility for everything lies on the individual shoulders i think systems do need to change um but what Amazon do is they provide something really conveniently, really cheaply, um, and really easily. And I don't think, like, if we're saying that we need to change and things need to be less convenient, uh, like, less, things need to be more painful and harder to engage with. Like, that's not a solution. No one's going to engage with that, you know. So we absolutely do need to be saying, yes, like, our organizations and can be more sustainable, can be better, give you a better feel-good factor. But, like, reality is they also need to be as convenient they also need to be as good a consumer experience because as a consumer you know that's a really important part of of the journey is is the convenience and and is the good stuff that amazon and those kind of companies are able to provide so like yeah i take the point you kind of you definitely have to be uh doing the the good stuff as well as trying to offer a bit of a feel-good factor or do things sustainably and Roland, and is there is there any other, do you ever look around and just think, geez, that business could be really sustain, more sustainable friendly? Um, is there any other types of businesses that you ever see out there? <laughs> you're like, oh, if they just did that, 
you know yeah yeah that's a that's a scary question because you might, I might go on a rant now <laughs> oh god <laughs> but um what's the biggest offenders no, here what's what's what sticks in the I mean, in the craw I mean yeah I mean look guys I mean I think the biggest one is the like there's so many companies that have so much that have so much resource and I just can't get my head around how the people who run those organizations with the power they have don't do things differently like so oil companies are the biggest one like and we have some big some we have some big fossil fuel companies based in ireland as well like dcc and some other ones and they have absolutely no plans to transition out of fossil fuels like it's just not on their agenda like they're genuinely saying we're just going to keep burning fossil fuels we're all in for the next 50 years yeah it's like what the hell like how why like you have billions and billions and billions in cash reserves like you genuinely could if you wanted to announce right it's going to take us time we know it's going to take you time but we're going to transition we're going to start building windmills and we're going to invest in sustainable energy or we're going to invest in like literally anything else anything else sustainable so i just can't reconcile how those big organizations couldn't don't do that but then you know i do think that um I do think there is a responsibility on on business to to kind of step up and to to genuinely think of sustainable how how they can be more sustainable and not just kind of as a tick box, yeah. but as a genuine thing because like the reality of the climate crisis and this is something that um, keeps me up at night because kind of almost unfortunately the, the work I do has led me to read a lot and get really engaged in the climate agenda and the climate movement so i've actually been taking on a lot of information about it all and the more you take in to be honest the more frightened you get because like one of the recent things i was reading is the you the ipcc and i know we're getting super technical here now but i'll try and keep it very straightforward um but basically like the leading scientists have said um this is the worst case scenario and the best case scenario. And they've been doing that since like the 1990s of how we think things are, of how we think, for example, the seas are going to rise or species loss, right? And every report that's been observed, so they said, they like did a forecast of how bad things are going to be. Every report that looked at what actually happened in terms of sea level rise, species loss, CO2 emissions has been worse than their worst forecast. So, Things are progressing at a worse rate than anyone, the leading scientists ever thought they would in a whole range of really important areas. Like the seas are rising faster than anyone thought they were going to rise. We're losing species faster than anyone thought we were. Emissions are continuing to rise to increase faster than anyone thought they were going to increase. So like the, the trajectory that we're on at the moment is like is genuinely apocalyptic. And I fundamentally just don't think people know this. I just don't think people have connected with the fact that unless we radically change things like we're facing apocalyptic levels of climate change where there will be storms so bad in europe that we won't be able to grow food like we won't be able to feed ourselves lads like and i just find it bizarre then that we have business people talking well actually you know it might affect our bottom line by one or two percent i'm like lads you're not gonna have a bottom line none of us will have bottom lines like don't worry ronan ronan don't worry jeff jeff bezos is going to get us to mars anyway (laughs) we'll be all good then but i think i think there's there's a simple not a simple answer but i think there's a couple maybe a couple of answers why people don't take and i i appreciate your point about the uh taking the box feeling and i think that you can feel that with companies that they're doing this but i'm like you guys don't really care about that it's not the i'll give you an example of uh i used to work for davy uh stockbrokers back in the day out of college oh 
you know the the belly of the beast as it were and um the right ground zero of you know of a lot of stuff but i and i know they've been really in the news uh you know acting uh, against their clients all the top guys there so uh this is you know this is all in the papers but i remember they were losing a lot of staff i had left left a long time at this stage uh, and they wanted to be more kind of like you know staff friendly and stuff like that and they uh they put in a barista bar and i go that's that's not what we're looking for <laughs> like you know that's not the <laughs> now go back to work <laughs> like you know I mean? it was taking the yeah, box yeah. for uh you know um uh, employee engagement or whatever but it wasn't really uh, didn't solve a, a lot of the stuff there but um what was the li- what was the line i read in the paper recently that people used to say it was me first davy second the client last was one of the was, models was, they was had that, it models. I was uh, I was at the, at the bottom rung down there, so they didn't uh, <laughs> they didn't really tell me much. Um, but anyway, the my point is like when you you said like why aren't people uh, acting and stuff like that? I think people are so they're they're in a, a scarcity mindset so much that they're just like that sounds terrible, but I just can't worry about that. I I have to focus on me. The every the news is telling me that I'm going to lose my job. The news is telling me this that and the other. Or they flat out don't believe it. I think that might be something they put their head in their sand. sand and they say, "I." Or, or they're they're not. You know, they haven't got long left anyway. <laughs> and it's the young, you mentioned before. It's the young okay, people yeah. are more concerned because it's their it's their direct future. That is a thing, yeah. I'm sure. Older people yeah, are like, definitely. yeah, yeah. I I think you're right. I think it's a multiple. I think it's multiple things like that. I I think though that what we need to be saying now is the people who are in positions of power to do something about it don't get a pass. Like if you're if you're working a nine to five, you're a nurse or you're flat out working or you're you're on low wages or you're in a nine to five, like and you're stressed out with your job, like I don't think it's really fair to say, right, you need to solve the climate crisis. Like it's just not realistic. Like it's not realistic. Like I live a vegetarian travel free sustainable lifestyle and i only purchase clothes from like the most sustainable brands are are used and like who the hell am i to say to like the vast majority of the population who are working stressful jobs busy with childcare, busy with all these things to say okay now you also need to take on the climate agenda like it's just not realistic so i think like that's been part of the part of the problem is we've said to individuals you need to solve this whereas actually like there's a couple of key people who, if they decided overnight to do things differently, you know, 100 companies cause 71% of all emissions. For 100 people, Jeez. those 100 people said tomorrow, we're going to really do something about this. That would have much bigger impact on fucking 100 million, 200 million people deciding we're going to do something about it. So I think that the point, it needs to be directed a little bit. But the other scary thing that I was reading recently was um, there was a, uh, there was a uh, sociological expert in the U.S. professor who was brought in to what he was told was a panel discussion in uh, the U.S. He thought he was going to be given a keynote speech, but when he arrived, it was like 10 or 15 hedge fund managers. Um, and he wrote a book about this, really interesting. Um, and they set him down, and what they wanted to know was they had all these, they had all bought bunkers. So all of these hedge fund managers had bought bunkers in the U.S., like underground bunkers, which is apparently a massive industry. And they had stocked them with food and all these things because they were worried about like kind of like disaster planning stuff. Like some of them were worried about civil war, but the, most of them were saying climate change is going to disrupt our society. So I'm, I'm preparing. And they wanted to ask them how they would manage their security staff in a world where currency doesn't matter. So they picked his brains for like two hours about how they would manage their security staff basically from a sociological perspective and how they would get them, keep them loyal and all these things. Jeez. And 
I find that quite revealing that like some of the wealthiest uh, people in society are actively planning for a disaster day scenario like that should kind of be a, to. yeah perhaps yeah <laughs> like that should be a bit of a, a red flag mm. that's so interesting that kind of, that, sorry good I was just going to say, I know we've definitely taken this conversation down a, a path that perhaps we weren't planning at the beginning this, of the podcast. This is the this is the the beauty of of podcasts. We can go from you know uh, uh, thrift store ecom to uh, prepper bunkers and civil war uh, in thirty five minutes, which is great. But uh, maybe to maybe right, maybe to to reel it into the to the to the business again. Where what's the what's the plan from here are you i know that you're you're based in ireland but is this something that can be done internationally is this something that you you guys have a blueprint to roll out somewhere else or is it kind of specifically work for the irish uh kind of setup with um with charity shops do you know that way yeah so quite luckily um the problem that the charity shops face in Ireland and internationally is the same. It's very, very similar. So a big volume problem, a big problem with valuation, a big problem with, um, you know, with selling the stuff online. But then at the same time, based on everything we've just been talking about, there's a huge demand. So like the word is spreading and more and more people are becoming aware that fast fashion is a really bad thing. Like it's 70% of the fashion we buy is polyester, right? So, which is oil. So, it's kind of like walking around in a top that says Shell written on the back because they're like, you know, you're kind of sponsored by the oil industry. The vast majority of fast fashion is you might as well put sponsored by Shell or sponsored by BP on the back of your top because that's what it's made from. So people are starting to realize that and, and they're moving away from it. So the demand is huge. Um, and that's a similar, that's grown. That's the same thing internationally as well. So we've launched in the UK um, and we're, we're kind of really active there. Like we're signing up three or four charity shops a week like it's way busier than we thought it was going to be um which is really humbling because you kind of realize the 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 approach we've taken of just being really laser focused on iteration the problem trying to provide value has kind of you know for a lot of people it's resonating and that's that's great you know to, to be in that position now for the first time whereas for years you're kind of questioning should we do this is this worth it you know is this a waste of time to be in a position now where you're saying actually guys well done like we've actually built something that people are interested in is really nice place to be in so we started scaling yeah in the uk um and that's the big big focus now for for this year is to is to really uh focus on the uk but then we're also talking to uh quite a large network in germany as well like one of the biggest reuse networks there again all not for profit uh, another organization a reuse organization in austria um and then we have uh, we're kind of in advanced discussions then with an organization in canada as well um a very big reuse organization not for profit in canada and one early stage in the us um the uk stuff is is a real challenge with brexit and it's presented loads of challenges like it's kind of i just can't get my head around how we went ahead with brexit like it doesn't make any sense um having ha- been at the cold face of it and seeing all these challenges you're like what you mean we have to do all this work that we wouldn't have had to do otherwise um so that's been a challenge but then you know it's the european stuff is really interesting because we don't have to change anything you know we can do it all from dublin which is great nice. we just have to have localization of the language and then the u.s stuff is to be honest is a little bit more that needs a little bit more thought oh we lost you, Ronan. I think your audio's gone there for a second. Sorry, guys, I might have dropped off there. Yeah, I got you're a phone back. Call. Yeah, you're back. You were talking about the US? Yeah. 
Um, so it's kind of it's kind of hard. The, the US needs more consideration, is what I was saying. That it's it's a much bigger and a much scarier market, and who's going to be there, who's going to do the work, and how are we going to handle it? So that's kind of the in in Ireland. Is there many um, like government incentives for for companies like yourselves to be you know sustainable friendly? Um, I, I mean we've taken we've taken huge government support, so I don't want to be too critical. Um, but there, you know there isn't. You know, there isn't a sustainability fund, for example, or there isn't, which I think there should be. I think there should be a, a green fund, which um, basically enables companies to, to to invest in in greening their enterprise, whether it's through energy or through new supply chains or stuff. Um, that doesn't exist yet. Um, but you know, the other the other challenge, I suppose, of it is again is is in the economic model. So you know, when we started out, we tried to set Triftify up as a charity. We felt that if we do it as a charity. Um, it will get the most traction because we're going to charity saying we're also a charity. Um, but, you know, we spent three years trying to raise the finance as a charity and we just couldn't do it. You know, just we just weren't able to do it. You know, we weren't eligible for Enterprise Ireland money. We weren't eligible for Leo money. We weren't eligible for, we had to kind of rely on grant money. And, you know, when you consider that Enterprise Ireland invests like 200 million quid a year in enterprise in companies in Ireland, if you're not eligible for Enterprise Ireland in Ireland, like yeah. you're going to struggle. Mm. So we had to get eligible basically for Enterprise Ireland. And what we did was we just worked, we actually did a lot of work with Arthur Cox to try and develop a, a company model that would maintain our social impact ethos, but also make us eligible for all of these other finance routes. So that was a kind of a challenge. And again, it was a, you know, it was kind of six months to have wasted time, to be honest, that we had to go and do something that typical enterprises wouldn't have to go and do. So there isn't really kind of a, a level playing field in Ireland or, you know, I would argue in lots of places, but especially in Ireland, it's not the same. It's, you know, it's, it's like for profit enterprises are kind of playing on a level pitch and, and we're running uphill really. Mm. And, and so just for people that are listening that might have a, they're starting their business and stuff like that, dealing with enterprise Ireland, is that, is there kind of like, do they have like set levels. Okay. If you get this amount of customers, we'll fund you this way. Or if you can find X amount, will match that what's what's their model i don't really understand it yeah so it, it kind of works there's, there's a couple of different tracks and ways in so they have lots of different funding streams um and for example you can apply for an employment match like they'll have various employment match schemes where they'll employ uh, they'll help you increase your employment for example or and they'll give you a grant for that uh, but then they have the equity route which is starts out as the competitive start fund and you can get 50,000 euros from them for 10% in the company um, and then if you grow and if you're successful what you're able to do is apply for what's called HPSU the high potential startup and then there's two tracks on HPSU so there's the initial I can't remember the names to be honest sorry but um, there's one track which is kind of for the early stage startup so when you get CSF funding you're on that early track and you have a development advisor and they're trying to help you on your journey um, and you can apply for other kind of grants and stuff like mentorship grants or finance grants, kind of small scale stuff, but again, very helpful to start up. And then when you get onto the bigger, uh, that's the second track basically where you can, where you can basically say, we feel like we're really raising money here, or we feel like we're, sorry, we're really growing. Then what you can do is you go to them and you make an application for HPSU matched finance. And the way that works is for every euro that you get from a private investor, they'll give you a euro up to a maximum of a quarter of a million. Nice. So we got some really good advice initially, which was, um, look, you're going to have to do a huge amount of work with Enterprise Ireland 
and you're going to have to do an application and you're going to have to prove the case to them, et cetera, et cetera. And when you do that, you're then going to have to go and you're going to have to get private investors because they won't give you the money unless you have matched f- funding. So our the advice that we got, which was really good, was go and find the private money first and then go to Enterprise Ireland. Because you can say to them, now, we kind of did both at the same time because we wanted to be able to say to the private investors that if you give us the money, Enterprise Ireland are going to match it because they know, the private investors also know that you need more money to scale, you know, yeah. and they, you know, we went out and we said, well, look, we need a quarter of a million. And they said, rightly said, that's not going to be enough to scale. And we were like, yeah, we know. That's why Enterprise Ireland are going to give us another quarter of a million. And we had it in soft a soft kind of understanding, nothing in writing, but we we were very confident and we knew that, yeah, Enterprise Ireland are going to come on board because we were growing so quickly and because um, basically the traction we were getting was really good and we met all the criteria. Um, so we found a private investment first, went back to Enterprise Ireland and said, okay, guys, look, we have some really experienced, good investors here who are not only are coming on board with finance, but really get the ethics and the, the, the ethos of the company. Um, and now we want to do an application. And that just makes it much more compelling. You know, if you're going to anybody and saying, well, actually, these really good people over here want to give us money. Will you do it as well? It's just much more compelling than going and saying, well, you have nothing. Will you give us something? Um, um, And yeah, they've been really good. Like I I would recommend them, you know, Um, it's been relatively straightforward. It does take time, a little bit more time, perhaps than getting money from a VC. But, you know, you have all these other supports there. And, you know, we've gotten good support in in the UK side of things and and. and a range of other areas and it opens up other grants and other opportunities so cool. it's been good awesome okay this time we're coming up on our three quarters of an hour believe it or not we've been on a, a crazy journey so far but mark baker likes to finish things off with a lightning round for our sharks here on the shark pod all right um, so there don't have to be lightning lightning quick uh answers but it's kind of we'll, we'll see what happens what do you think mark what's the what's the first question there yeah i might mix them up slightly just based oh, on shit, um, the industry and stuff um so I'd usually ask what apps you use the most, but is there any apps that would help people become, have a more kind of sustainability friendly life? Oh, good question. I've started using Evoco recently, E-V-O-C-C-O. And basically you take a picture of your receipt, your shopping receipt, and it, it's really, it's really cool. Like I love the tech behind it. I actually had a call with the founder because I was like, how does this tech work? <laughs> Give me Are that they Irish or? <laughs> yeah, Irish, yeah. And uh, basically the tech will, will read your receipt and tell you the impact of your food shopping. And then you, wow. it's like gamified. So you do it each time you go shopping and you're kind of getting more and more impactful. And you're like, no way, I won't buy the avocados this time. I'll buy oranges or, or like I'll buy Irish strawberries or something instead and Portuguese or something, you know. So oh, it's kind of it's kind of fun as well. And what's that called again, sorry? Evoco. Evoco. Very good. Yeah, that's cool. Stuff. What's your favorite social media and why? Oh, Instagram. I'm a feed for Instagram. I just find it's great for traction and there's no bullshit. Like people are a lot more straightforward and honest on Instagram. You can tell a proper story on Instagram. You can actually engage with people. Um, we do all, all of our socials, like uh, not all, but like 90% of our work on social is directed on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, I have stayed off TikTok because it's like crack cocaine. And <laughs> if I go on TikTok for like two minutes, I'll find myself three hours later watching puppy videos. Like, so that's... <laughs> I had a look on that as well. I tried from- to- when you press back, it just gives you more stuff that you want to look. You're trying to get out of it. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. no, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. It's obviously good. It's good for business. People people do well out of it. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's definitely, it's addictive. Um, if you weren't doing what you're doing now, what else do you think you'd be doing? It, this sounds like this is a real passion project. I'm actually quite envious of of what you're doing, you know, and, and how passionate you are about it. But 
if you weren't doing this, what, what else would you be doing? Um, good question. Um, probably be in activism, probably be trying to fight some other good cause or, um, yeah, I'm a big fan of renewable energy as well. I love the idea of democratizing energy. I think we should have like in De- in Denmark, they have co- cooperative uh, energy co- co-ops across the whole country. Like 90% of their energy is produced by companies that are all democratically owned by communities, which I just think is savage. Um, so that's something that's kind of like a something I look forward to maybe in the future. Um, but other than that, um, I would probably, if I, to be honest, I'd probably just take a lot of time off and just read books and garden. <laughs> Very good. Um, how much money is enough money? Oh, good question. Um, I think if I can, I think if I can eat well, I'm a big foodie. I think if I can eat well, see me friends, um, yeah, just enjoy life without having to worry about um, be, without being stressed. I think that's enough. Um, like the vision for me has always been really, you know, if this works, a hundred percent of anything I take will go back into the next cause, um, and that's how we've set it up. So yeah, for me, it's not really about the money; it's kind of about the the having the crack um, <laughs> and enough enough money to have the crack. <laughs> that's a great yeah. answer. Yeah. Put that uh, on ju- my tombstone. <laughs> just enough. Just- Spent the last few quid on the tombstone. That's it. Then it's, uh, you know, yeah. um, okay. Is it is it who you know or what you know? Oh, who you know, who you know, who you know, who you know. Yeah, who you know. And um, the reason I think it's who you know is because I've 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 just seen th- how much easier it is to get stuff done if you know people and the right people. And uh, it's a bit of a barrier as well, I think, to a lot of. You know, a lot of and a lot of entrepreneur entrepreneurship successful enterprises are based on who you know, and it and that who you know circle is a circle, and it's not a circle that everybody has access to. It's not a circle that I had access to coming from Bonog and Clondalkin. It's not an access. It's not a. It's not a circle that people in disadvantaged communities or marginalized communities or minorities have access to. So I think it's kind of an interesting one to think of, like from a sociological perspective, our enterprises represent that circle. Like our companies don't represent society. You know what I mean? Because they don't have access to that circle in the same way that other people do. So I think that's a really interesting one. Um, obviously, you need to know what you're doing and you need to research and that's kind of taken for granted. But if you want to be scaling and growing, it's absolutely who you know. I think another question that people need to ask themselves is how do you get to know the people? How do you get yeah. in the door? You know, that's the struggle. There's different ways of doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... I think you try, I think you kind of have to be I think you just have to be really genuine you know you kind of have to lay I I have I would have started I set up my first company straight out of college and I would have started with the kind of glamorized glossy approach and trying to present an image of myself and it doesn't like it's just very stressful to do that you know or to try and figure out what other people are looking for it's just really stressful so I think the sooner I kind of learned to say, you know what, like I don't have time for that anyway. And I'm just going to, if people re- resonate and want to have a conversation, great. And if they don't, just move on to the next person. Like there's enough people out there who will yeah. want to talk to you for who you are. So um, I think that was one of the things that has worked for us is just, we're just really genuine and honest, you know, and people are related to that. And I think then it's, I think there's a, I think there's a qualified networking is really good. So, you know, I have stopped doing like, go to a random networking event for the sake of doing networking. Whereas like I'd be invited to a group and I'll look at the list and say, Oh yeah, actually these people look like they're really in my space or 
stuff something that I can get something out of. And there's loads of groups like that. So I think if you can pick out those networks and say, actually, I'm going to do qualified networking and I'm going to do networking in spaces and in groups that I have a much higher likelihood of me getting something out of, as opposed mm. to like a nine o'clock or a seven a.m. breakfast with a lot of accountants or something. Yeah. Not to have, not to hate on accountants, Mark, but like, yeah. do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I know. Like even even our introduction was like talking about being genuine it was from Rob Cullen in the chamber. Do you know, like, and he obviously got on well with the both of us and there he, he knew we'd get on well and there's a, there's how we'd networked, you know, one step. Yeah. So shout out yeah. to Rob. Yeah, big Rob. Thanks, thanks. Rob. <laughs> um, okay. Two more, right? Um, if you could advise somebody to learn one skill, what would it be? And this is a, it's kind of an entrepreneur type of question, so keep that in mind. Microsoft, Microsoft Excel. <laughs> Nice to be a wizard. At that. You're hating on accountants, and now you're going to talk about Excel. <laughs> I know, I know. Like we, Excel is so important, especially in anything to do with data or anything to do with ecom. Like if you're if you're flying on Excel, you just can do a lot more. Um, I wish I had just spent more time doing it in college. It's kind of something I had to learn more of coming out of college. Um, so yeah, that's the first one that comes to mind. But then the second one probably is actually probably the bigger one has been like well being. So if you can develop the skill of looking after yourself, which I think is a skill, you know, really minding yourself and making sure that you're well, I think is actually so, so important, you know, and it's not something I've done in later years is to say, you know what, if I'm not enjoying this, there's no point and I'm going to take a day off to, to chill out and get my head right again. And, you know, I think that's a skill and I think it's probably the most important skill. I think to be able to give to others, you have to get your own house right as well. And I've noticed that myself yeah. when I'm in, when I'm doing well, I definitely give more to others, whether that's just even talking to people or actually donating, you know. So if you want to give more, you gotta you gotta look after yourself first. Um yeah, last one. What book uh would you recommend to maybe the eighteen year old Rona? Oh good question. Um and it has to be a book that was written when I was eighteen. <laughs> um, <laughs> it so it can't be, be like no. it can't be like Greta Thunberg's book um, which it probably would be um, I think I don't know I think um, God it's such a good question because I'm thinking of like the autobiographies I read which I read a lot of like so Gandhi's autobiography or Martin Luther King's biography um, had a huge impact on me and I think if I had read them earlier maybe that would have been good um, but then at the same time like I think I would have put a lot of pressure on myself to read like books that are going to make me smarter or books that are I can add to my belt you know tick a box and I've read and now I'm smarter because I've read this really dense book whereas actually like now I'm just reading cheap fiction because I'm like I need to switch off so I'll pick mm. up like the cheapest trashiest horror fiction romance or crime fiction <laughs> no I'm Don't the romance I tried I was like oh <laughs> bit, bit too much but um I think if I yeah I think if I could go back to 18 year old Ronan I would have said just enjoy reading for the sake of reading because it's actually such a great way to to switch off and just to relax very good nice that's it so Ronan I'd like to wish you all the best with the with the business sounds like you're going to be conquering the the German speaking world next next on the uh, the agenda uh, but it, it seems like something that could be kind of rolled out in all different uh, countries and so that have a big impact and uh, help those those charity charities in the end of the day uh, so thanks very much for coming on the shark pod and we will uh, talk soon thanks a mil Ron thanks a mil guys thanks guys cheers. it's been great to chat cheers